It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, this is David Svikalman, Hartman's Director of New Media. A lot of our staff is out this week, so for this last week of the year, we're bringing back an oldie but goodie, an episode that we recorded back in March of 2021. This was our first musical episode, and it's still one of my very favorites. In this episode, which features four guests, I'm pretty sure that's the most we've ever had on a single show, we talk about the particular beast that is American Jewish music in all of its loveliness and strangeness. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute in North America, and we're recording on March 12th, 2021. Now for something completely different. In this podcast today, I want to talk about Jewish music, and this will be one of two episodes that we're going to do about Jewish music. One today about what we'll call inelegantly from Jewish music. Jewish music that's mostly connected to the Orthodox community, but lives at this kind of weird intersection between liturgical music, synagogue music, music that people dance at weddings, and a music industry that is a piece of cultural performance in its own right. This is something I've cared about for a long time, not just because I like Jewish music, but because in my own career as a podcaster or radio host, my first version of doing this was as a college student in the late 90s at Barnard College Radio, where I hosted a show called Show Far, Show Good, first with a friend, Michai Mazar, and later for a couple of years with the now senior rabbi of the Jewish Center of Manhattan, Rabbi Yossi Levine. We called it Jewish Music and Variety. There were not a lot of Jewish music shows at the time. There was JM and the AM with Nachum Siegel, which I think is probably still running. And because even though we had two dozen college students who would listen to our radio show on Friday while they were preparing for Shabbos, we still managed to convince the music distributors that they should send us CDs, which they did. And so we got all of these random Jewish music. And so it's been a kind of passion project of mine to, to pay attention to this really interesting industry. I want us to kind of explore this story of the evolution of the music industry here in America from a business that was largely rooted in cantoral music, a small network of iconic performers in the 60s and 70s, and now a music sub-industry of its own, deeply intertwined with contemporary musical trends, and a kind of way also of telling this fascinating story about all of the evolutions of the firm world itself. Just to give you one example, Benny Friedman's song, Ivri Anochi, which means I'm a Hebrew. He means a Jew, of course, but he refers to himself using a biblical phrase. This one piece by Benny Friedman has 20 million views on YouTube. 
Last I counted, that's more than there are Jews in the world. In other words, we're talking about a culturally significant phenomenon. It's a wacky video. It's worth watching. It's worth listening to the whole song. So in talking about this, kind of unpacking the story, I have an all-star cast of friends and colleagues to explore this phenomenon together with us. I'll introduce all of them, and then I'm going to ask each of them to tell us a little bit about their own passion for this music, their own access to the story. It's worth acknowledging that all of us, whether now in our lives or in our upbringing, are connected to the Orthodox community. So this is also personal and professional for a lot of us. David Beshevkin is the host of the 1840 podcast. Yardena Osvand is a pediatrician and host of the Talking Talmud podcast. Miriam Miller is a colleague of mine at the Hartman Institute and a Ketuba artist. And Shira Hanau is a reporter with JTA, our co-sponsor of this podcast. David, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your access to this music and why this is a fun conversation for you to be part of as well. This is a absolute joy for me because Jewish music had a major formative part of my Jewish identity. But it also is difficult because my taste and orientation towards Jewish music is probably cut off in 1992. That's when I entered the grunge stage of, you know, fifth, sixth grade, pretending that I was a fan of Nirvana and whatever was in the air in those heady years of the early 90s. And then I kind of reemerged and re-embraced Jewish music with my own children. But the problem is, it's like Rip Van Winkle. I woke up into a totally different different world of Jewish music. And I long for almost a very distant, but you could reach out and touch it, a past of Jewish music that I felt was a little more organic, a little less synthetic and produced. And that's probably my struggle with contemporary Jewish music, which I love. I think it's a great cultural builder, but I'm definitely longing for some earlier years. Yardena, what about you? I just love music. So I majored in music at Stern College. I'm married to a musician who's the director of music at SAR Academy. So our home is just filled with lots of different types of music, some Jewish, some not Jewish. I actually love how Jewish music is changing. I feel like there's a bunch of years where the quality of music is actually not so great. And I feel like now we're entering this really interesting period where there's this blend of taking in a lot of, I guess, what we would call secular influences, but creating just very interesting Jewish music where I'm not even clear who the audience it's intended for. And there's just so much to talk about where that whole thing is going now. Yeah, 20 million YouTube videos is so interesting because A, there's not that many Jews, B, there's a lot of people doing this music and it's hard to figure out what's the commercial angle. Like when it was, you know, a handful of guys in the 1980s, and it is guys, and that's something we'll explore in the 1980s. Okay, you could probably make a living with some concerts and then compensate with a few weddings here and there. But now it's a little bit hard to tell where this whole industry lives. Shira, how about you? What brings you into this conversation? So I feel like I can't say what brings me to the conversation without acknowledging that my name literally means song. So now that's out of the way. I feel like I grew up in a world of Jewish music that was a little different because it was like a weird combination of Dudu Fisher and Chazanus from my dad, and then Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which is not considered Jewish by most, but I do know every single word, and so I'll stand by it. And also like NCSY and Shul and learning the songs that a lot of the artists that we're going to talk about wrote, but that by the time I was learning them, I assumed that they were like given to Moshe by God at Sinai. So I'm coming into this not quite knowing all the names, I think. I've learned a lot from this group, but 
I'm a big fan and I cover orthodoxy quite a bit at GTA. So I think the cultural resonance of all these artists is important to me. Great. And I'm glad that you referenced things like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and obviously Fiddler. There's a whole way to talk about Jewish music that is independent from this weird slice of it, which is the Jewish music of orthodoxy. This is an ample music tradition that goes well outside of it. But of course, in some ways, they're inseparable. And Miri, how about you? Great. So just like David was saying, this music was really the soundtrack of my childhood. I really grew up with this music. And it sits at this great intersection between childhood memories and then really meaningful communal, social, spiritual experiences. And I would say also I grew up with particular songs, road tripping with Lev Tahor and Shal Shalas while like simultaneously listening to audio recordings of Homer's The Odyssey. So this like weird combination of things. And my associations to these songs have like shifted over time, which has also been like an interesting evolution. Yeah, I'll tell you one of the things that I would love to unpack with the rest of you as well is I've noticed that I have this ambivalent relationship to the fact that our house, we're not really Orthodox. We belong to a conservative synagogue. I grew up Orthodox. And at the same time, my oldest kid is in an Orthodox high school. And one of the things that I actually really like most about his time in an Orthodox high school is his acquiring of this form of Jewish cultural education. I can't fully explain why, but I do sometimes notice that there is from music and orthodoxy in a way that there isn't really in other denominations. In the reform movement, there's a handful of iconic music producers, same in the conservative movement, but in orthodoxy, there's something different. I don't know. We can play that out. But let's start with some of the mega icons who made this field, and then we'll move a little bit from the past into the present. If you go back, you know, 20 and 30 years, actually even further back, there were really only a handful of individuals who were at the time responsible for the construction of this field. I'm not going to list all of them. Shlomo Karlbach is one. We're not going to talk a lot about Karlbach today. Karlbach is such a complicated person to talk about because of his legacy mostly surfaced after his death in public about improper interactions that he had with women. Karlbach's own music production was enormous and has led to also a whole sub-industry of post-Karlbach style producers, this folk type of Jewish music. We'll focus today, though, on two others, Mordechai Ben David, kind of the king of Jewish music. I don't know whether it's a name that was given to him or that he assumed by himself, but it's certainly how his Wikipedia article describes him and the Miami Boys Choir. So Shira, let's start with Mordechai Ben David, or as he's known, MBD. Give us some background on MBD. I'll just say I have like a completely unfounded theory that there's like one guy writing all of the Wikipedia articles for every from music person. It's like a Marvel universe of Wikipedia pages. They're all interconnected, interlinked. But anyway, let's start with Mordechai Ben David. So first off, Mordechai Ben David is not his real name. It's a stage name. His real name is Mordechai Werdiger, and he's the son of the famous Chazan David Werdiger. So he's kind of a perfect link from the world of like the traditional Jewish music that's heavily weighted towards the Chazanos and the cantorial style to the world of the modern Jewish pop music. So he started his career in the 70s, and he was one of the first of a generation of soloists. So Avram Fried was also one of those. Avram Fried's nephew is Benny Friedman, who's the singer behind Avery Anochi, I Am a Hebrew, that we heard before. And Fried and Ben David kind of come up around the same time and sang together a bunch of times over the years. So Ben David's early work is kind of traditional Hebrew songs based on Sukim from the Torah or Nigunim, traditional Hasidic wordless melodies. And it's the kind of music that you would dance to at a more traditional 
bar mitzvah or a wedding or in shul or something like that. But by the 80s, he starts to move into a bit of a more modern style. So we get some classic 80s rock songs. Some of the songs start to take on a more sentimental tone, like Mashiach is coming soon. And it's also during the 80s that his music starts to become more political. So in 1985, there's Let My People Go, which is about Jews living behind the Iron Curtain. And then in 1986, we get the most political song of all, Jerusalem Not For Sale. Overnight Massive construction atop our Jerusalem mountains. A campus luring innocent souls to drink from the forbidden fountains. Like many before, they've come here for war. We're warning them now, it won't pay. Together as one. We will overcome, bringing her freedom today. Jerusalem is not for sale, voices crying, thundering throughout our cities. You better run for your life, back to Utah overnight before the mountaintop opens wide to swallow the side. Hey, holy moly, what is going on in Jerusalem is not for sale? I don't know. What is this war? If you were going to pick top three Jewish enemies are the Mormons on that list. They're not for me. (laughs) But I think we should give some context. Right, there's a context here. So we should give a context, right. The context is the Mormon church bought a piece of property in Yerushalayim that they were going to convert to a church. And people were very upset that they bought this. So I understand that people were very upset about this, but the language, it's so polemical. I've always thought more the Mormons and us could get along. We're kind of like persecuted people, We're very misunderstood. We believe in things that no one else does. We have our own set of prophets. What's the war about? Let's get along. So they have one little building in Jerusalem. That's okay. Well, I think it was more than that. There is a large campus for the Church of Latter-day Saints in Jerusalem. This was about expansion of that campus. But it's kind of a perfect storm of a song in that sense, because it's an 80s rock song. The English songs are a big piece of the story. Ones who are not going to be dancing necessarily at bar mitzvahs and weddings, but they tell the story much more explicitly of the emergence of a kind of Hasidic and in some ways modern Orthodox identity. And we could talk a little bit more about that politics. It's a little unfair to MBD that this is the song that we've profiled because so much of his music would actually be known by a lot of people without a sense of these politics. But the politics of this are just electric and kind of amazing to listen to. You kind of would anticipate that the vitriol of a song like this coming out of a singer like this, there's a longer list of people (laughs) for whom the anger and hostility might be reserved. It's a little bit strange. It's the Mormons. But let's just bridge for one second, because one of the stories of American orthodoxy is the politicization of American orthodoxy. And just a couple weeks ago, the following piece came out and went semi-viral within the Orthodox community. It's a beautiful song, and it's being performed by Eitan Katz, one of the more popular contemporary musicians, with accompaniment by Ben Shapiro on violin. ignore that comment under there. 
oh my God, doesn't get any better, two of my faves. And that was a video of Ben Shapiro and Eitan Katz playing Lemancha. I watched my liberal friend audiences, the small population of people who love Jewish music, but who don't identify with politics of Ben Shapiro. I just watched their heads explode. I think it's important to note in fairness that Eitan Katz and Ben Shapiro went to high school together. So it was kind of, I think the context of it was like old high school friends. I mean, Eitan Katz is not all that political. He doesn't have any polemical songs. I think that it was something nostalgic and sweet about getting together with a high school friend and singing together with no commentary outside of the fact that I'm not really a, a expert in violin playing, but I was sold on it. It worked for me. I saw people like three categories, one who were fans of both, and they were like, oh, this is heaven, like, beam me up. I want this song at my funeral. There was another category of people, it was more playful, a lot of people, you know, facts and feelings, puns, Ben Shapiro's famous on facts don't care about your feelings, and they were using this in a playful way, realizing this wasn't a major political commentary. And then there were people, as you mentioned, whose head exploded, they couldn't reconcile how can this political figure be brought in into such a deeply spiritual song. I'm probably in categories one and two. I thought it was sweet. It definitely didn't bother me at all. Let's stay with you, David, and go to the other major 1980s iconic group. And this, I want to say, strange phenomenon of the boys' choir, and in particular, the most famous, the Miami Boys' Choir. is going on with the Miami Boys Choir? The Miami Boys Choir, which is, I believe, a second iteration of an earlier boys choir, I think he ran in Toronto, is part of a long series of choirs that had been peppering and kind of dotting definitely the American landscape. And Yerachmiel Bagan, who runs the Miami Boys Choir, you know, he is the lyricist and he does the music. He created what I believe to be the first celebrity that you can interact with in the Jewish community. I went to elementary school, and the sense when you found out that somebody in your elementary school was in the Miami Boys Choir, it was like growing up and going to school with Drake. I can't even get bigger than Drake. It was the biggest thing in the world. And I think, to your Achmiel Begun's credit, I think what really sticks out, and I still listen to Miami Boys Choir up until the album One by One. I will not listen after One by One. I think that was the peak. To his credit, I think what makes Miami Boys Choir so amazing is two things. Number one, he was an amazing, wholesome lyricist, that he really was able to communicate these very sweet, optimistic values. This was a song about not talking during davening. He has songs about literally optimism called Sunshine. He has songs about Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. He really was a very wholesome, 
optimistic songwriter. Number two, and I think this bears mentioning, there's something very sweet about the contrast between the angelic voices of the choir and the very, can I use the term balabatish? Tell us what that word means. Balabatish is the voice of somebody who's not a professional singer. Yerachmiel Bogad does not have the voice of Mordechai Ben David or Avram Fried. He doesn't have the voice of a soloist. He has the voice of a very good high holidays Baal Tefillah, somebody who would daven a chazan in a shul. And there's something abrupt about the contrast. In my mind, I always envision him grabbing the mic from some eight-year-old and jumping on for a lyric. And the contrast of the voices, I found very, very sweet. And I wanted you to know, I still listen. He has a song, Bisiyata Deshmaya, which means with the help of heaven, that I still listen to every single day when I drive with my son, who's four years old. And there's something just very, very sweet and wholesome about their music. Again, I'm not disavowing, but I cannot speak to anything after the hit album, One by One, which included the national hit Sunshine. I really respect your honoring of the discography approach here, right? That there's a certain point past which it can no longer be considered the credible Miami Boys Choir. And you're right, the bunch of other boys choir, I think London School of Jewish Song, Toronto Pirchei, People know more of those songs than they know because those appear in synagogue. And actually, it's likely that if there's a song that is part of the synagogue liturgy that's really hard to sing, it probably came out of a boys' choir. Can I add one more thing? Because you didn't mention them, and I think it's the ultimate contrast to Miami Boys Choir, and that's the choir that came afterwards and I think almost usurped some of their popularity, and that's the Yeshiva Boys Choir. Yeshiva Boys Choir, which is a lot more insider, uses a lot more synthetic beats, really speaks to the contrast that I began with. They use voice synthesizers. The tone of the music is much faster, much more pop, almost hip-hop at times, and there's some Something that I look back through with a great deal of nostalgia to the years of the Miami Boys Choir celebrity. Yeah, and by the way, Maccabees, too, are an inheritor of this, which is an all-boys choir. It's just supposed to be in kids. It's adults. I'll just say on the content of this particular song, We Need You, this is a really interesting thing that's different between orthodoxy and other denominations. In orthodoxy, talking in shul is part of shul. You go to shul, you talk. There's much greater decorum outside of the Orthodox community. But if you know the Orthodox community, this is something you just grow up with, which is everybody sitting and talking in shul, and then the rabbi yells at everybody to stop, or you give a clap and get everybody to quiet down. And this is a song, a desperate plea, that we should all stop talking in shul so that we can actually pray. Just about the lyrics here, it's no matter of hashkafa, but it's something we all have to do. I thought that was like so progressive. Maybe it's like a hint of pluralism there. Well, they use the term hashkafa. Hashkafa means an outlook. It's not a matter of your outlook. It's not about what you believe in. It's just that you should probably not be talking in shul. There's also something that we have to mention when we talk about the boys' choirs, which is that if you don't know that you're listening to a boys' choir, you could be forgiven for thinking that you're listening to a woman. They're singing in the register that women could probably be singing in. I don't know how intentional it is, but to me, it sometimes sounds like it's replacing soprano voices in this whole musical world because women don't record music or they do now, but they haven't historically. That seems extremely plausible. I don't think that's plausible. I think that is, you need that range when you have a choir, you're not going to let women sing. So you have young boys sing. 
I think that's very much the case. It reminds me of Tiger Beat, like the old teen magazines where you have the teen idols, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, and like you could do a double take. It's gender bending how angelic they look, and I think that that does play a role in some of the way that the choirs are portrayed. Yeah, I just do want to acknowledge that for a lot of our listeners, as was the case with my kids when I first started playing Miami Boys for them, there was a little bit of like, what the hell is this? They liked it. They're bangers. It's got great music. But there was like a lot of like, what the hell? What, what is going on here? And we're going to drop into the accompanying playlist for this show. Another Mammy Boys Choir classic, Chaste Hashem. I'm not going to say more about what's in there. You'll listen to it and you'll notice how kind of wild and remarkable it is. I want to shift to another iconic piece of this music, which is also relatively modern. And I want Miri to walk us through it, which is the music that is much closer to kind of the lived Jewish experience of what might be played under the canopy, under a chuppah at a wedding, the songs that get sung around Shabbat tables. And one of the iconic groups that kind of leads the field in slow songs that Jews sing is a group called Devekis. Let's get a listen here. All right, Miri, tell us a little bit about Vegas. So I actually have to echo what Shira said earlier about some of these tunes growing up feeling like they were from Moshe from Sinai and that you know, you had no idea that someone actually wrote these tunes. So that was this song exactly for me. We have a tradition in my home of like, we grew up seeing this before bed, this tune with the Shema you say before bed. And so growing up, I just assumed that no one actually wrote it. It was just a tune that existed since the beginning of time. And when I found out, like, I'd say also fairly recently that someone actually wrote this tune and it wasn't such a long time ago. It was mind boggling to me. And I'd also say that it moved from this intimate home family experience to when we started singing it during Slow Shira in college or, you know, at Simchas Torah during Kol Hanarim, the blessing for the young kids. It moved into this social prayer space of friends and community. And it's just this weird, weird experience all around. And still, when I hear the main band connected to it, I'm like, but no one wrote this tune. This tune existed always. This actually came out much more recently than you think it came out. I remember when Devekas 4, when this album came out, I think it was 1990. And it just traveled so quickly. And you know what's so interesting also about Tavekis is, unlike a lot of the characters we were talking about earlier, who are closer to the Hasidic and Haredi worlds, Tavekis is much more connected to modern orthodoxy. In fact, one of the people who's the lead singers in Tavekis is the cantor at the Hebrew Institute in Riverdale, which is as modern as you're going to go in the modern orthodox community. So maybe that's partly, Miri, why it traveled into your life, into our lives, maybe more closely, because it was like, you know, it was our team. Also amazing how those tunes become part of what we think of as tradition. Like, I definitely thought that that song was sung to children in their beds in Krakow in Poland before the war. I thought this went back thousands of years. I think we just saw this when Rabbi Tversky just passed away. Who knew that he wrote Hoshia Tamecha? Also, one of those tunes, you grow up hearing it every year in some Torah, kind of one of those old tunes the men sort of shuffle around to. You thought it came from Europe, and it was written by him. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not, and I don't think any of us are ethnomusicologists, but there are very, very few of the songs that are in our liturgy today 
that are more than 70 or 80 years old. The traditional tunes that people sing for Shalom Aleichem and Eshet Chayal at a Friday night table were written in the 30s and 40s at the earliest. There's like a handful. And if you look online for older, maybe Maus Zur, Maus Zur is older, but there's really not a lot. And it has this weird effect that we've actually been living through a music renaissance for the Jewish people, a period of tremendous production of Jewish music that many of us know and think of as very old, but is actually taking place right now. I loved what Miri said, and I think it really speaks to the way that lyrics were wedded to music once upon a time, and I think that we've fallen off of this a little bit. It reminds me of the quote that's attributed to Michelangelo, that I didn't sculpt this drawing, I just removed the rock to reveal the sculpture underneath. And I think that some songs fit so nicely with the words that they are representing, not just in terms of the melody, but like what the words mean and what they're about, that sometimes the fit is so strong that you almost feel like that idea that they had this block of rock and they just removed the song. And I think we're missing that a lot nowadays because it's so much more produced that sometimes the lyrics and the words that actually are being represented in the song are much more easily lost. Yeah, so we'll include in the playlist a couple of other songs like this. I know David wanted us to include some songs by Regesh, which also have the same quality. Devek is not the only show in town that's creating music that has the effect to people of being like songs that you thought were there at all times. But let's shift to a little bit of a different story here. The pieces we've looked at so far are iconic music, Mordechai Ben David, Miami Boys Choir, Avram Freed, a handful of others. We looked a little bit at this stuff that kind of lives in Jewish life. Devekas is a key example. But there's a whole other category, which is, sorry to put it like this, but music that's objectively good. Right. We all like the first categories, but like we're really talented musicians are actually absorbing the musical methodologies and the cutting edge of their time and bringing it into the Jewish community. I want to give my favorite example of this, which was basically a group of Bali Chuva, people who had come back to Jewishness in the 1970s as part of an outreach yeshiva in Jerusalem called the Diaspora Yeshiva, who were basically the inside Jewish version of the Grateful Dead, the Diaspora Yeshiva band. encourage you to actually watch the version of this that's online from 1979, because you can actually see what these guys look like in the 70s. The 2015 version of it is not quite the same. These guys were doing basically Grateful Dead-like music. I think these guys are at the top of the game. I happen to love the instrumentation of Diaspora. My issue is that I always struggled because of the Grateful Dead with their vocals. I was raised in the grungier era. So for me, the vocals never spoke to me in the same way that they spoke to some of my peers. Mia Culpa. I don't think there's anyone better. They're just amazing. Every year at the Haas concert, I'm like, maybe they'll be the surprise guests. Maybe they'll be the surprise guests. And they never are. Can we just say, I'm publicly putting it out there. Could you please do a reunion concert? We've lived through the pandemic. Our neshamas deserve this. Believe it or not, they did a reunion concert a few years ago at Carnegie Hall. Why didn't I know about this? I know, right? But Yardena, say a word about the Haas concert, because that in of itself is an object that actually has to be understood as part of the story. 
The Hask concert is amazing. So the Hask is an amazing organization that runs a camp and group homes for disabled children and adults. And they have this camp that many people in the Orthodox world know about. The acronym of Hask is sometimes jokingly referred to as Halachically Acceptable Shidduch Club because many couples meet there over the summer. And every year they put on this concert, which when you watch it, and I've been to it a few times, it's sort of interesting because one of the things that we talked about is really these are mostly men who are in this scene. So everybody on stage is only male. And they even bring up some campers from Hask onto the stage, always male. But Avram Fried, who really is a great guy, hosts this every single year. He always sings. And then there's some kind of theme, like one year could be the producers, it could be the writers. And it's this combination of very, very current people, but also some of these sort of throwback, like the rabbi sons. Diaspora, I think, did perform once. This year was online because of the pandemic. But when you watch it visually, it just sort of reminds you what a male-dominated space. I don't even know if dominated is the right word. It's a male space, but it's a great concert. Diaspora, to me, represents what happens when people who actually really know how to do music kind of bring their method into this discourse. For now, something completely different. He said it's God's plan, but I'm God's man. Yeah, I used to run with BGD. Yeah. I dropped the B and put a O after the G. Yeah. Six points still big up King D in the synagogue. Camouflage, but I can't wipe the skin off. I'm proud of it. It's loud a bit, but I'm not trying to crisscross. I done made it this far. Hold it all in my heart. I hold my breath and brace myself when they take their socks off. Ain't no monkey business, cause ain't no monkeys in here. I know what you've been thinking. The black A blinking. Just wanted you to be aware. Signing off, it's Mr. Black. Hitler's worst nightmare. Okay, so first of all, who is Nissen Black? So he's originally from Seattle. He used to rap under the name D Black, converted to Judaism in 2011. He now lives in Beit Shemesh. I encourage everyone to watch this video. First of all, it starts off with a whole reference of coming to America. Then the song begins with a Zulu chant. There's even a reference to Drake's song, God's Plan. Who is supposed to be listening to this? It has tons of views. It's amazing. He definitely has people of different religions. But who's the attended audience? Is it people who are living in Williamsburg? Is it people in Meisharim? Is it middle-aged ladies like me who happen to really love rap and hip-hop? I don't think it's me. But it's just so clever and so smart. And there's so many layers to it. And the lyrics are amazing. And I just, I think he's amazing. Let's do another one of these on this spirit. Give a listen. Shira, tell us about Lipa. Lipa is actually not someone that I grew up listening to at all. I was sort of surprised to find out about this like Hasidic, interesting glasses wearing guy that was super famous. And I think he's been called the Hasidic Lady Gaga. 
as well as the Hasidic Elvis Presley. I think both of those are by the same newspaper, so take it with a grain of salt. But Lipa Schmelter started out as a wedding performer, released his first album in 1999, and sort of brought in a bunch of modern influences to classic Hasidic songwriting. So brought in like pop influences, some things that were kind of foreign in the Hasidic music world before him. And in some ways he kind of like koshered them. And in some ways he faced a lot of resistance for doing that. So he had this huge concert he was supposed to do at Madison Square Garden in 2008. And a group of Gedolim told people not to go because it was going to be a negative influence on young people. So he's faced some pushback, but he recovered from that. He's still listened to by a lot of people, still very popular. And he's also kind of an outsider in certain ways because one, I mentioned his crazy whimsical glasses, which everyone should look up a picture of him because his glasses are great. But also he actually went to college, which is not common for Hasidic men for the most part. He graduated from Columbia in 2018 with a degree in creative writing. So he's been an interesting character, I would say. And this song is really interesting. It's called Gelt, which means money. It was released in 2006. And it's all about basically a critique of the role of money in people's lives. And I think it's specifically about the Hasidic world too. Like it talks about people asking for money in shul. Some people found it a little bit too much that he was making too strong a critique. I think that of all of the analogies that people have used, I genuinely believe Lipa Schmelzer is the Billy Joel of Hasidic music in the sense that the evolution that he has had, the way he's confronted modernity, very basic problems, critiques, and the struggle of his life, which was he evolved a lot and he kind of became a little bit more modern than he scaled it back and came kind of closer back to the Hasidic community. I heard this once from an insider within the Hasidic community, of which I I can't profess to be, that Lipa Schmelzer, more than anybody else, Hasidim are able to look at him and say, he understands my story. He understands what I'm confronting. He understands the negotiations I'm making. And I actually think there's something really moving about his story. And I just wanted to mention like that Billy Joel model, Piano Man, you know, what that feels like when somebody who lives in a small town and goes to the local bar feels like. I think in many ways he offers that for young Hasidic Jews. It also seems like this relates to Yardena said before, both of these examples are breaking new ground in terms of who's the intended audience. If you can get a Madison Square Garden concert, you're not filling it up entirely with members of your own community. And if you're inside the discourse to the degree that you're actually using the music to criticize your community, that's really different than using the music like MBD and Avram Fried were doing, which was to broadcast the best versions of the values of their community. I just think when you see Lipa, it's really a creative soul that just wants to come out in so many ways. And I think it took him a little bit of a long time to figure out where that place was going to be within the community. So I just have so much respect for him because I always wonder how many other people with this type of creativity are trying to find their place. One more thing about Lipa, he is a delightful Instagram follow. There was this like great story he posted maybe a month ago during one of the big snowstorms. He just like opened the front door of his house to look at all the snow and was just like so happy. It's just wonderful. So I highly recommend you follow him on Instagram. Great. In the spirit of one of the other weird elements of the change in Jewish music being the YouTubeification of Jewish music also. And it's interesting, by the way, if you do research on this, a lot of the songs that we play don't actually have music videos attached to them. Dvekas didn't make music videos, but you can't produce Jewish music now without music videos. One of the most delightfully terrible Jewish music videos that exists is for this song of a group of Hasidic men singing Im Hashem Lo Yivne Bayit. You got to watch the video. So you must watch this video. It just cannot be divorced from the visual, but there's men in black suits and hats with payas 
at maybe a wedding, maybe a charity dinner. And they're seated around a round table with a white tablecloth. And it looks like they just like happen to sit down together. There's half-eaten challahs all over the table, half-filled wine glasses, and bottles of Hamish seltzer brands. And the only indication that this group of people has some shared purpose is the microphone setup. Otherwise, they just look like they are sitting at a dinner. The words are actually beautiful. It's a combination of verses from Psalms. It's about how man needs God's help to bring anything to fruition into the world and that God is our protector and does not slumber or sleep protecting us. It's magnificent. It's magnificent. It's objectively incredible. No, I think, Shira, you're right, though, in the story of this, which is it's a musical performance, but it looks as though it's simply recorded at a wedding. And there's something so weirdly self-aware about the whole thing. Like, they didn't stage it to look like it's at a wedding. It is probably recorded at a wedding. And yet, if you were going to stage it, you would stage it to look like this. And this video has 17 million views. That is not normal. That is crazy. 17 million views. It was put up in 2013, so it's got some years on it, but it's very clear if you look at the comments of this video that the views are not just coming from Jews. In fact, they have a worldwide audience. There's sort of like a genre of meme that has risen out of the comments. It doesn't translate well to being spoken, but it goes something like, my girlfriend thinks I'm cheating on her when actually I'm sitting with my boys thinking, you must know you've There's comments from around the world. And I think that one of the things that people just love about this video is that it's identifiable as Hasidic music. It's identifiably Jewish and from, but it's also just fantastic. The harmonization is incredible. The beat is perfect. They're so in sync and it's so professional. And that's really like what Shira Choir is about. And you should note that if you watch the video carefully, you can see Shalom Lemmer. There's another fantastic video where he sings the Moshe Oisher, Had Gadya. And it's a similar thing. It looks like a bar mitzvah in that video. Everyone turns the second they start singing and they're like, what just happened? Who is this guy? And he does this incredible rendition of the song. Shalom Lover was the first ever Hasidic musician to be signed with a major record label. He started out as a wedding singer, as a Shira Choir member, but it's so casual and also so effortless. It feels like the singing table on a Shabbatot. So I want to put this together with, this is going to be a weird mashup, but I want to put it together with a different song.
The reason I want to put these two things together, this is a song by Joey Weisenberg. It's performed by his musical group, and the lead vocalist is Deborah Saxmans. The similarity here is, A, it's beautiful music being done together, but also the world of non-Orthodox production of this kind of music, which is relatively new, right? This is very different than exists elsewhere by Joey and that circle. They're listening to the choir that we listened to before. They're listening to the same music. And there is something similar structurally and musically, even though the optics, if you watch this video, you have women in it. And the optics and the audio are obviously quite different with women's voices, but they're kind of trafficking in the same type of conversation. I would say something also similar to the Hashem Loivne Bayi video is that this informal setting connects back to what we were saying before, these tunes that get integrated into prayer, into social settings, and they kind of lose the origin that the informality of sitting around and singing, of standing around and singing in a sanctuary or in a wedding call hints to this is how this song should be sung. This is the setting that this song should be sung in. And over time, it just becomes a part of these like social get-togethers, these communal get-togethers. And the Joey Weisenberg music also, I think, has kind of functioned in a similar way to some of the music that we've talked about. Like if you're in an egal space, people will start to sing one of those songs. Like everybody knows that song. Those tunes will just be assumed in the same way that an Orthodox space is. Mordechai Ben David tunes are totally assumed. Right. And it's not Madison Square Garden, but at this point, Hadar can sell out a Joey Weisenberg concert. And it's not small that there begins to be a cult following and that ultimately creates an industry. Last couple of things I don't want us to lose sight of. Really... Such a weird, delightful song by a group called Schlockrock that spent most of its time really in the 1980s and 90s as kind of like the Jewish community's own Weird Al, taking popular songs and writing Jewish stories connected to them, but with one major original song, which is called Minion Man. And actually, this is a recording of Minion Man by Schlockrock together with the aforementioned Maccabees. I asked the man, I saw how many Jews in this town. So Minion Man, I think, is one of these classic songs, very different than the rest of the schlock rock, let's say, canon, which generally, as you said, Yehuda, sort of took very famous songs like, let's say, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, but the lyric is, born in the USA, but I'm making Aliyah today. And I think we always felt as kids when you listen to it, especially if you went to Jewish day school or I once heard them on a Pesach program because it was sort of like you were listening to rock music. But it was Jewish rock music. So you really wanted to hear Born in the USA, but you were willing to settle for the schlock rock version of it. But Minion Man sort of has this cult following to it. There are great hand motions to it. When I worked on Counterpoint, which was a great program that Yeshiva University used to run. And that's actually, I know I keep talking about my husband, but I kind of say we fell in love over that song. He was the musician on the program and he used to stand on stage and lead 400 children singing that song together with all the hand motions, and I can still picture it today. But I think the message of the song, again, it's only about men because it's about Minion in an Orthodox shul, but it's about the importance of that one Jew and the difference that that one Jew can make. And so it's the combination of the really corny lyrics and the beautiful message that it ultimately has about the importance of each and every individual that I think makes it a classic. We used to sing that song 
every single Shabbaton with NCSY. I grew up in Rochester, New York. It's a smaller Jewish community. The advisors came in from New York. And when we sang that song, I don't think this totally sank in at the time, but I think it did a little bit. That song felt like it was being sung as a dirge for the small Orthodox Jewish community that I lived in, which was like a strange choice in a way. But it was also, it was meant to impart this message, like you have to go to Minyan, you have to be a Jew, you have to live your life in that way. And I can't separate the song from that. And I know every single word for that reason. Yeah, this is a very popular song in our house. And my kids also make fun of it because, again, we go to Egal Shul. So part of it is like, well, you could have just cut your Minion project in half and it would have been a lot easier. It wouldn't have to be in the back of the hardware store. But one of my kids got a karaoke machine for a birthday. Literally the first thing that they did was picked up the microphones and sang Minion Man. There's one other iconic English group that I want to reference. And Mira will give us an intro in a second, but we'll listen to a couple of beats from Safam. And this song is called World of Our Fathers. I made a bit of money in Boston's old North End, which we gradually learned how to spend. A bunch of little citizens I brought into this world, but most of them were no goods who squandered while I toiled. Sophisticated Americans they very soon became of their father they would grow ashamed. Mary, you want to tell us a little about Safam? Yeah, so... Safam is an American Jewish rock band that formed in the 80s. They also do this amazing blending of pulling different music genres and like current music genres and bringing them into the Jewish music space. This song in particular is this great blending of folk rock with guilt about the old country and memories of the old country and like American Jewish identity. It's this great blending of an intersection of all these different areas. It's worth acknowledging that Safam is unusual to what we've done so far. And Joey Weisenberg's the other exception is not really in the quote unquote Orthodox community, although it was in the modern Orthodox community in the 80s. When I graduated from eighth grade in 1990, our entire eighth grade graduation was built around Safam songs. And part of that had to do also, they were writing a lot of songs about Soviet Jewry. And so right at the time that the Berlin Wall was falling, the Soviet Union was collapsing. Those were like the anthems, ultimately, of a certain section of the Jewish community at that time. So that's what's interesting to me about Safam. I think a lot of the other artists or groups we talked about kind of hold up on their own. But when you listen to Safam, there is something really dated almost about their lyrics. It's so nostalgic for me. I mean, when you used to listen to We're Leaving Mother Russia, that song was everything about going to Washington, D.C. and really protesting what was happening with Soviet Jewry in Russia. But today, like our kids would listen to that and you would really have to give them a history lesson about why this was important and why this was interesting. Their other one just another foreigner where he talks about meeting an Ethiopian Jew. So like when we were growing up, it was amazing when that happened. I mean, we had never heard of such a thing before. And our kids are growing up. Thank God they see Ethiopian Jews all the time. So they puzzle me. I love their music, but it's dated. It holds up for me because it's nostalgic. But I don't know that your kids would take to listening to some of their songs the same way they take to Minion Man. Right. There's a little bit of a time capsule in that sense, in terms of where American Jewish liberal politics were in the 1980s and what at the time seemed progressive actually looks really, really dated. My parents met at one of the last Soviet Jewry rallies. So to them, this song is incredibly meaningful and incredibly romantic. And I remember the first time hearing it, I was like, what is it? But now I've like taken on how meaningful that song is to them, but like for a totally different reason than I think it was originally intended to. 
I think also just the dated comment is so good. It stands in contrast to the Schlockrock Maccabees version of Minion Man, because in that video, what's happening is Lenny Sullivan of Schlockrock is like teaching Minion Man to the Maccabees. And it's like, they're the next generation of Schlockrock. Like they're holding up what Schlockrock did. They're taking it to the next generation. And they do that with their covers of other English songs that they make Jewish and that they also make Jewish in a similar kind of instilling Jewish pride kind of way. We're going to conclude with one last song. One of the subtopics that we alluded to a few times here is how male this whole field is, especially in the Orthodox community. And it's mirrored here that Safam is kind of the leading well-known English language band, not just in the Orthodox community during this period of time. I want to conclude, though, with one song. from Debbie Friedman's iconic Birchot Havdalah, the blessings on the Havdalah service. Debbie Friedman herself of the reform movement, incredibly prolific songwriter in many of the similar ways that some of the characters we spoke about earlier in the Orthodox community and has a huge effect on reform liturgy. But what's so striking about this particular song is that it managed to actually travel into Orthodoxy in part, I think, because I don't think people know where it came from. I was in a religious Zionist circle a number of years ago, and people referred to it as the Karlbach Havdalah, which was the weirdest reference. But what they meant by that was it's a Shlomo Karlbach song in the sense that it's easy to learn and easy to remember and ubiquitous. And it was kosher, because if you can take it from being a Debbie Friedman song, you know, female reform to being an Orthodox man, it can actually become legitimate and in play. And there's actually a remarkable YouTube video to this effect, which tracks the Debbie Friedman Havdalah around the world and shows how in every denomination of Judaism, it's thought of as being one of these Mount Sinai songs that everybody knows and therefore it's kosher. I think this speaks to all music. A good nigun is a good nigun. And there's something about it. It's exactly as we keep saying about some of these songs, it makes you feel like it was created before Bereshit. I'll bring a little Torah into this. Like there's this very famous Gemara in Pesachim that talks about things that were created before the creation of the world, like Torah, Teshuva, and things of that nature. I feel like Nagunim. There are certain Nagunim that feel like they had to always be part of the world. And I think that's why they end up traveling everywhere, because a good song is just a good song. That's an awesome place to end. So I want to thank my great guests this week, Yardena Azban, Shirahano, Miri Miller, and David Bishevkin for being part of this conversation. It's been a year in the planning. We got together last spring, right before the pandemic, actually in person, and had a blast thinking about this music and all the way that it's shaped our lives and how it still is kind of the soundtrack for our lives in interesting ways. This was a really interesting conversation where we got to touch on all pieces of this kind of music as culture, as narrative, as politics. I'm going to ask our guests to submit a couple more songs that we wish we would be able to talk about, and we'll put those in the Spotify playlist that will accompany this. And I really hope that this playlist is something that will be not only entertaining to listen to for those of you who don't know anything about this music, a really interesting introduction, but maybe not a terrible thing to have in the background when you're preparing for any Jewish holiday that might be coming up. So thanks so much for listening to our show and stay tuned. We'll have another music episode with a different panel of guests talking about Israeli Jewish music, which tells a really different set of stories, but also, as Jordana said, is ultimately about the question of whether it's good or bad. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic 
Agency. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon, with assistance from Miri Miller, one of our guests, and Sam Hainback, and music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show. And you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. We will be taking a week off for Passover, but we'll see you after that. Have a great, safe, happy, and healthy holiday, and thanks for listening. Thank you.